0: Hello, it's Thursday, July the 7th. We are coming very late in the day today. Okay, we're going to get into Trump's would or wouldn't press conference. But first, check out my website for the latest video on the euthanasia debate. I answer the question, shouldn't we let people die with dignity? I mean, since we put our pets down when they're sick, shouldn't we do the same for our family? So I break down that argument and show three major flaws with it. So go ahead and check that out. You can also check out my other video series, The Abortion Debate. So this week, we're going to look at three stories and, of course, the history behind those stories. We're going to talk about our borders. We're going to talk about Trump and Russia and some educational changes coming to Ontario. So we're going to first dive into our borders. So every time I listen to anyone discuss illegal border crossings, I hear the same thing. America is founded by immigrants. So we're going to discuss the Canadian border crisis, but first I really want to answer this question. Was America founded by immigrants? Of course, we have to break down what is meant by immigrant. I don't hear people angry about legal immigration. I'm sure there are some fringe groups that don't want any immigration, but they're really not the mainstream at all. The concern I hear and personally I have is illegal border crossings. So was America built on illegal border crossings? In 1776, in 1776, the Declaration of Independence was written. That declaration, in case you're unaware, was actually a letter written to the King of England. It stated all the reasons they were really angry with the king and why the king was not taking good care of them. One of the reasons they were angry with the king was that he was limiting immigration to America and they wanted more immigrants to be allowed to come and they actually needed more immigrants. So in that case, yes, right at the very beginning of America's founding, we can find immigration. In the Declaration of Independence, both immigration and settler nations are mentioned. The Declaration was signed by 56 men, and eight of those men were not born in America. In 1787, 10 years later, in Philadelphia, men gathered to write the Constitution for a new country, the United States of America. At the Philadelphia Convention, a debate arose over immigration. Who would they allow to immigrate to the United States, and what would the laws be surrounding this? Okay, important to remember, never was it debated that this new country would have no borders and that anyone could come in. Right at the very beginning, what was discussed was the laws that would surround immigration. And right at the very beginning, it was a very heated debate. Ben Franklin, he didn't want any immigrants from Germany because he saw that in Philadelphia there was a huge problem with the German immigrants. They were not learning English. They had their own schools that only German children could attend. They had their own newspaper. And what troubled him the most was that the children who had been born in America were still not speaking English, but were speaking German. And here was really the crust of the debate. Immigration had to be managed in a way that would make this new country grow and prosper. It would not be a way to allow other countries to just come and take their land. If people are going to immigrate to America, it would have to be for the purpose of being American. The amazing thing about this new country that they made that's different from all the other countries in the history of the world was that it wasn't based on genetics. Japanese, Chinese, African, Indian, Italian, these countries are all based on genetics. I mean, you can go and take a genetic test today and find out what percentage you are of any of these races, but America was different. It was based on it instead on an ideology, one of freedom. Now how that would play out and what freedom would look like, that would take many years and a civil war and then some more years after that. But through all the years, the war, and the court cases, everything pointed back to this one conference in Philadelphia. And this ideology that rights were given by God, not the government, and therefore could not be taken away by the government. This ideology that all people are equal. In the end, the founding fathers decided that Congress would have the right to decide laws about immigration. Of all the things the Founding Fathers fought about and eventually agreed upon, immigration was one they couldn't agree on. In 1798, it looked like America would go to war with France. Adams was the president, and he even called Washington out of retirement because he believed they were about to go to war with France. Adam was the president and Jefferson was the vice president. At this point in history, if you lost the election, you became the vice president. So Adams and Jefferson had run against each other for the job of president. Can you imagine if that happened today? What would the states be like if Trump was president and Hillary was the vice president? Actually, the fight between Adams and Jefferson was really bad, maybe even worse than Trump and Hillary. Adams actually won by just three votes. One of the things the men fought about was immigration. Adam, in his fear of going to war with France, banned any immigrants from France coming to the States. He said the French who were in America already were causing problems. They weren't following the laws. Adam said that that there was no way of knowing if the French coming in were spies. And if war broke out, who would the French support, the United States or France? Jefferson, on the other hand, pointed out that France was in the middle of some intense persecution and people were fleeing and looking for freedom. America was founded for freedom and should allow those looking for freedom to live in America. America should not fear the French. They should welcome him. So right at the beginning, the argument was this. One side had wanted to protect America. The other side had wanted to help people who needed help. And both sides were right. Right. Now, before you assume Adams was clearly the bigot and Jefferson was the hero, Adams was the only founding father who never owned slaves and who fought against slavery right from the beginning. Jefferson had a complicated relationship with slaves. He tried to pass laws to end slavery. He also owned a bunch of slaves, was in a long-term relationship with a slave and actually had children with her. So like I said and all the time. History is not made up of straight-up heroes or straight-up villains. It's made up of people who are just trying to figure out life. Adams ended up passing the Aliens Act in 1798. And these were four laws that gave the government the right to imprison and deport non-citizens if they were deemed dangerous, if they were from a hostile nation, if they made false statements against the government, Interesting fact, these laws were actually revised and used again during both World War I and World War II. And in 1948, the Supreme Court ruled that these laws could be in effect with any country that America didn't have a peace treaty with. Okay, back to Adams and Jefferson. They ended up opening the borders to any free white male. Now, when we see that, we think, how horrible is that? Only free white males? At the time that was actually extremely open and although the border seemed open you had to live in the country for 14 years before you could become a citizen. Adams and Jefferson ended up making up later in life and they ended their bitter rivalry. However the one argument they could never agree on was immigration. The two men died on opposite sides of the country on the exact same day. July 4th, exactly 50 years since the two men signed the Declaration of Independence. Okay, so jump forward now to 1895. We're about 100 years into the future, and the Civil War has ended. Black people are free, and although the Democrats are still making their lives very difficult, the 14th Amendment hasn't been passed, saying that anyone born in America was an American citizen. This amendment was passed to make black ex-slaves American citizens. But one man named Wong, Wong Kim Ark, 22 years old, was about to find out if that applied to him. The Chinese had been banned from being citizens. This was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Wang Kim Ark's parents had come to America for work in the late 1800s and they knew they would never be citizens. Wang was born in America and in his early 20s he went to China to visit. On his return he was not allowed to leave the boat. The government had closed its doors to China and they were not allowing any more immigrants from China. But Wang Kim Ark said I'm not Chinese. I'm American. I was born in America. Wong Kim Ark had to stay on the boat for four months while his case went to court. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and in 1897, 120 years ago, the Supreme Court decided that the 14th Amendment was for everyone. If you were born in America, you were an American, even if your parents were not. While this case was being fought in court, a statue was being delivered to the states as a gift from France, the Statue of Liberty. The arm actually arrived in port the same day that Wong Kim Ark arrived. The Chinese ban stayed in effect until 1943. Japan was attacking China and also attacked Pearl Harbor, and the Chinese and American government teamed up to defeat them. After that, the ban was lifted, and the Chinese were allowed to immigrate to the States and even become citizens. However, only a 105 people a year would be allowed to enter. From 1890 to 1920, the states allowed 18 million people to immigrate to the states. They entered at the Else Island Immigration Center. It was called the Island of Hope. This was the largest immigration in human history. And this is the time period people point to when they say that America was founded by immigrants. But here are some important points. They all came through an official point of entry. They all went through an immigration center. And the government held the right to send people back. For hundreds of thousands of people, it was devastating. They took the dangerous hard trip to America only to be turned around, put back on a boat and sent back home. People were rejected if they had a contagious disease, if they were found to be insane, if there was any criminal offense, even one, or if they were blind. Those who made it into the country were left to fend for themselves. If they wanted to eat, they would have to find jobs. The first generation was extremely poor. They also faced discrimination. Many people thought the millions coming in were way too many too fast. The concern was that the people from each country were grouping and forming things like a little Italy and other tiny versions of their home countries and not joining into the fabric of the country. So after thirty years the laws changed. In nineteen seventeen, the More immigration laws were passed, but in 1920, quotas were put in place. These quotas gave the number of people that could come in from each country. All parties agreed with the quotas. The government and the people wanted to make sure that those coming into America really wanted to be Americans. They needed to melt into the American melting pot. In the 1950s, immigration changed again, this time adding family relations and your ability to work into the law and the 1960s immigration law was passed. Through Bush and Clinton and Bush Jr. and Obama era, the border with Mexico was addressed as a huge problem. All four of these past presidents talked about the need to end the illegal crossing and force people to cross at the port of entry. Actually, a wall was not first proposed by Trump. Each of the past presidents talked about the need for a wall, and in fact, it was passed by Bush, and that involved two Democrat senators voting for it, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. So, was America built by immigrants? Yes and no. The argument and the tug of war between two founding principles, protecting the country and giving aid to those in need, that's been part of the American history from the beginning. Americans have fought out what that means. However, never, ever, ever, ever in history have the borders been open to whoever wants to come in. It's always been a law to cross at the port of entry. It's always been the law that the government has the right to decide who comes and who stays out. So what about Canada? Well, we're only 151 years old. We're pretty young. After the War of Independence, Americans kicked out all the people loyal to the king, and they all came to what would eventually become Canada. During the time of slavery, slaves escaped and came to Canada. However, sadly, we did stop many slaves at our borders and send them back. Before the breakout of World War II, a ship full of Jews escaping the Nazis docked in Canada. We sent them all back as well, and they were all killed. That was when Canada decided that if someone comes to Canada and asks for asylum, we would allow them to stay in Canada until we had processed their claim. Also at this time, we decided Canada would not take people who claim asylum if they're coming from the United States. This is called the Safe Third Party Agreement. Since we border on the states, and it's really, it's the only country we border on, we haven't had the same problems Americans have had until recently. In the late 80s and 90s, I volunteered with a group that worked with refugees. I lived in Newfoundland, and at the time, we were the province most refugees came through. Boats would dock in our ports to fuel, and also planes landed in the Gander Airport for fueling. People would get off the planes and the boats and ask for asylum. I was a young teenager at the time. I was actually 12 when I started volunteering. I would spend time with the children while the parents were being helped. I told them stories, and of course, I told them about Jesus. I was able to lead many of these children to Christ, and many parents also became Christians. A few years ago, I met a young lady, and with her, she was with her child, and she was one of the children that I had worked with when I was just 12 years old, and she's now a mother herself and is raising her children to love and serve Jesus Christ. Over the years helping with refugees, I have never, ever met a Canadian who is against immigration or against serving refugees. Why then are conservatives suddenly being labeled as bigots who hate all immigrants? Have conservatives changed or has the term immigrant changed? You see, through both Canadian and American history, one thing has always been clear. The immigration process must be maintained and laws have to be followed. After the Rwanda genocide, Canada was devastated to hear about the horrible trauma the people of Rwanda went through. So we opened our doors to people from Rwanda. What we did, however, was bring both the victims and the murderers to our country. And it took a long time to fix that problem. People who came to Canada thinking they were going to be free were faced with the exact same discrimination and hatred from the exact same people. Literally, the same exact people who hated them were now once again their neighbors. Just a few weeks ago in London, Ontario, a refugee who had been a sex slave for ISIS found herself on the same city bus as her ISIS captive. That is not cool. Canadians want to welcome with open arms, but not with open borders. We want those fleeing persecution to have a safe place to live and raise their families. We don't want the persecutors to come in as well. So in Quebec, we have a road called Roxham Road, and it's been flooded with hundreds of people a day. We have over 30,000 people so far who have illegally crossed our border. Quebec ran out of room, so now the government is putting them on buses and sending them to Toronto. Toronto ran out of room, but they're still coming. Yesterday, Trudeau invented a new cabinet position. One Now we have a minister just to deal with the problems we have with these illegal crossings. So why should we be concerned about this? Well, look, a lot of these crossings are coming from Nigeria. They're getting on planes, flying to the States, taking a bus to Roxham Road, walking across a small field, passing a sign that says, this is not a port of entry, do not enter, being greeted by police who are supposed to arrest them. But once they say, I'm claiming asylum, they're set free to live in Canada with health care and free schooling and free housing. All things, by the way, that those coming to Canada legally do not receive. And my friends who are in the process of being Canadians legally are extremely angry about this. But why does this matter? Well, let's look at Nigeria. Just last week, 12 villages were burned to the ground. Hundreds of people were killed. In one village, the people were at a funeral because an elderly person had been killed. When they were walking back to their village, they were attacked and they were all hacked to death. Men, women, and children. Why is this happening? Well... There is a drive to make Nigeria a Muslim country and the villages that are Christian are being attacked and destroyed. Hundreds are dead, but really the number is unknown because the dead are burned. So there's no way to know who is dead and who fled and who's living in the woods or who's been taken as slaves because the slave trade is huge in Nigeria. There are many slaves. Christian young men and women are being sold by Muslims. And if you think you would have fought against black slavery during the 1800s in America, you only need to look at what you're doing today with the black slave trade happening right now. If you're doing nothing, then that's probably what you would have done in the 1800s as well. So when I hear about these people being brutally murdered, sold into slavery, what do I want to do? I want them to come to Canada. I want them to have freedom that I have. I I will have them come stay in my house if that's possible. What I don't want is the people who think it's okay to kill somebody or enslave them because they're of a different religion. I don't want that person living in my country, becoming a citizen and voting. And that's why I believe in borders and allowing the government to vet people. This is the tug of war. We want to help those who need help. We also want to make sure Canada is a free and safe place so we can continue to help people. I'm nervous that so many people coming from Nigeria are coming here to Canada through Roxham Road. Nigeria has many people who need help and I want to help them. Nigeria also has many very evil people that I don't want in my country. I would like my government to make sure that our country is safe and maybe keep slave traders out of the country, just as a starting point. That doesn't make me bigoted, and that doesn't make me racist. All right. So, our second big news story of the week, I actually find kind of annoying and also a little funny. All right, so Trump said he didn't see why Russia would be involved in the hacking of the election. Then he said he wouldn't. I mean, I don't see why Russia wouldn't be involved in... In hacking elections. So either they would be or they wouldn't be. One of those two things. It was Russia or maybe somebody else. But whatever it was, it definitely wasn't me. It wasn't Trump. Basically, that sums up the week. Okay. The media is saying this is Pearl Harbor or 9-11 all over again. You know, when thousands of Americans died, it's just like that. I even heard one journalist say that it's like Crystal Night. And if you don't know what that is, that's the night Hitler rounded up all the Jews. So yeah, it's just like that. On the plus side, the Democrats who've always been pro-Russia and pro-communists, they've suddenly seen the light of day and they've realized Russia is actually bad. And maybe they'll even start figuring out communism is bad and stop trying to push it down the throats of Americans. But probably not, since they're still leaning pretty heavily in the direction of socialism. But we can always hope. If Trump turns the Democrats into an anti-Russia party and an anti-communist party, that just might be his biggest accomplishment. All right. So a very short history story that has nothing to do with happened last night, but maybe we'll put it into a little perspective. In 1989, H.W. Bush was the president of the United States. Communism was about to fall. Bush, as a president, believed strongly in personal relationship as a way to work in the world. He did not believe in public statements as a way to make things happen. It was the year that the Chinese stood up against communism. June 4th, the communists came in with tanks and drove into the square, fired into the crowd, and drove over the protesters. It was a bloodbath. In that same year, the Berlin Wall fell. It was one night as the East and the West Germany people stood on top of the wall and danced together, and the world began to rejoice. Communism was dead. It was a party, a world party. I mean, I remember as a child watching documentaries about the horrors of the wall, and I remember watching in my parents' bedroom, watching the dancing on the wall in the news. We didn't watch TV as a family except for news, and this was a huge night. But for H.W. Bush, the night was not a party. It was a bomb that needed to be disarmed. Either communism was about to fall or we were about to have a disaster like the Chinese disaster. Global leaders were calling Bush and sending telegrams. The world was actually on the edge of war and the world was celebrating not knowing how close they were to a worldwide disaster. The media were at the door. They needed to hear from the president. Senators were already making statements. The Cold War was won. America had defeated communism. But the war was not done, and Bush knew this. But he also knew he had to make a public statement. He also knew the communist governments were watching. If he said anything that embarrassed them, or anything that made them look like they had lost a war, those dancing on the wall would be dead, and the war would break out. So Bush talked for 30 minutes. He was as boring as possible. He basically said nothing. A reporter named Leslie said, "Uh, Mr. President, you don't seem very elated. You don't seem very emotional. Well, I guess I'm just not a very emotional guy. I'm not bubbling over. It's kind of late in the day for that. The American people were outraged. How could their president not care? I mean, communism had just ended. The Cold War was won, but he did care. Once the cameras were out of his office, he was working like crazy, talking to world leaders, making sure everyone stayed calm. And the wall did come down, and the Cold War did end. And communism, although there is still communism communism in the world, it did basically end being powerful. And a president stopped a world war and a massacre, all behind the scenes while appearing to the media to just be bored by the whole thing. What does that have to do with Trump and Russia? Well, what exactly has Trump done with Russia? He gave weapons to the Ukraine so they could defend themselves against Russia, He put heavy sanctions on Russia. He's trying to build up NATO and make the members of NATO put more money into their defense. Russia doesn't want that. He's trying to stop Germany from taking oil from Russia. He's put American troops in the Balkans and he's lifted the ban on selling oil, which has almost destroyed the Russian economy. His presidency has not been great for Russia. So Russian and American diplomats met over many times over the last few months, preparing for this meeting with Trump and Putin. Then last week, The two met for two hours. Then they had a press conference. Journalists from all over the world were at this press conference. Who in their right mind thinks that press conference would be an appropriate time for the president of the United States to bash Putin? You think that would bring more world peace? Putin standing in front of a world of journalists being torn down by the American president? That sounds like a good idea to you. Don't forget, America and Russia combined owned 90% of the nuclear weapons. So maybe everyone could just calm down. So Trump said he didn't see any reason why Russia would be involved in meddling with the American elections. Then he said he meant to say wouldn't. Okay, no one believes that. Look, obviously Russia meddled in the elections. They have probably meddled in every election since World War I. China probably meddled as well. And Americans probably messed with the Russian elections. Obama definitely messed with the Israel elections, trying to overthrow Benjamin Netanyahu. Obama also spied on Angela Merkel. That was awkward since it was leaked to the press while Obama was in Germany meeting with her. Nice. In our last Ontario election, Americans were meddling in our election. Yeah, so maybe everyone could just stop doing that. Also, it'd be really nice to have a pet unicorn. We can all hope, right? All right, so while the Americans are comparing Trump refusing to embarrass Putin on a world stage to Pearl Harbor, over here in Ontario, we're about to teach children that sex is from the dark ages and you don't need consent and all the little kids are going to become sexually abused, or at least that's what I keep reading all over my Facebook feed. Literally, someone told me that now children are not going to learn about consent until they're 12 or 13. And that means they won't know that people aren't supposed to touch them until they're teenagers. So now little kids are not going to be safe anymore from all the perverts. Um, Just a reminder, little kids have parents. And we're going back to the curriculum we used in 2014. All of us were taught good touch, bad touch, and we all knew sexual abuse was wrong. It's not like that just showed up in 2014. So everyone can just calm down. A new curriculum is being written, and in the meantime, we're going to be using the 2014 curriculum. Yes, the new sex ed is gone, and yes, I'm happy about that for two reasons. One, it was too much information at a young age, and two, parents were not part of the process. So, a few parents were asked about the sex ed. It was a very vague questionnaire and it went to one family per school district. So, no, parents were not involved and parents were outraged by it. So, the anti sex ed group is actually really diverse there's black parents, white parents, Chinese parents, they all hate this sex ed. There's Christian parents, Muslim parents, Hindu parents, all don't like this curriculum. We have concerns about our children are learning and also what they're not learning. Parents want to be involved in the education of their children. And you know what? That's a good thing. You need the trust and support of the community you're serving. Parents have rights and we're not just passengers in the life of our children. We are raising our children. The schools are not raising our children. If you're teaching sex ed, there has to be room for critical thinking and an understanding that there are many ways to look at this topic. When it comes to sex, families are different and they have different views on sex. You get parents angry when they're pushed to the side and only one view is taught. And when it's taught so early. We want our kids to learn academics. We want them to learn math. We want them to read. So sex isn't the only thing that's out. Actually, discovery math is out. And guess what? History is back in, yay. All right, so what is discovery math? It's the idea that you think through how you get to an answer, and you don't necessarily have to have the right answer as long as you are thinking along the right path. There's no memorization of math facts. It's all thinking through a concept. For an example, seven times seven, you could put out seven plus seven plus seven all the way up, or you could draw little boxes instead of just memorizing seven times seven, memorizing your seven times tables. History is the same way. You don't memorize any names or dates. It's just an overall idea that you learn. And that overall idea is that Canada is a bad country. We all deserve to be punished. If you're white, you're probably part of the problem. And if you're not white, you're a victim of this horrible country called Canada. So that basically sums up Canadian history that's being taught. I guarantee if you went into a classroom and asked a student or even a teacher to name three prime ministers probably couldn't do it. As you know, I love history. I actually make my kids list the prime ministers of Canada before they get any ice cream treats. My kids can also earn extra internet time by doing geography. And by geography, I don't mean environmental propaganda. I mean like they can show me countries on the map. Our brains need to memorize. We have to look at cognitive load. And that means we have limited space in our working memory. So we have to store things in our long-term memory. We can only deal with so much stuff at a time. So we have to be able to draw things out of our long-term memory. And we put things in our long-term memory with practice and repetition. So we need to go back to saying our times tables every day, listing our prime ministers, singing funny songs that involve important dates, Manitoba made this change. Parents had to fight for this teaching to be put back in the school. And it's already been implemented and they're already seeing improvement. Alberta is doing this as well. Both provinces, though, they had massive parent pushback in order to get that to happen. So Ontario, let's keep fighting. So this week, while we looked at borders, the serious concerns we could have with that, um, but the left has created a picture that all the Canadians are concerned with open borders are bigoted and racist. Trump isn't saying publicly the things he believes. His actions show he understands Russia is a serious threat, probably more serious than we know, but he's being diplomatic, which is kind of surprising for Trump. Yesterday I went for a long walk and I was listening to the Bible as I walked. I kind of find leaving the house and walking is the best way to really get away with God. I have to actually get away. So as I was going through the story of Job, something struck me. For those of you who don't know the story of Job, he loses everything. So he's extremely rich and well-respected. And then he loses all his money. His kids all die. He gets sick and everyone assumes he's sinned. And his wife even tells him to just curse God and die. In church, we tend to be really tough on his wife and kind of throw his wife under the bus. I mean, who needs a wife like that, right? But this week, God showed me something. Both Lot and his wife lost everything. In that time period, your wealth and respect was tied to your husband. When he lost his wealth and was looked down by his community, she also lost everything. When his kids died, that was her babies that died. And then Lot got sick, so she had to care for him. At one point in Job, we read that she's refusing to have sex with him, that she actually hated him. She was hurting also. We see from Job that through all the hardship that came to him, he continued to trust God. But we also see that God was revealing himself to Job. He showed him that he was the creator, he talked to him. Job saw in the middle of the mess that God was in control. Job even calls God both his accuser and his redeemer. This was thousands of years before Jesus Christ. So God revealed to Job something others would not see for thousands of years. Job says at one point, God, you can take everything, but do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. Job knew the only way to survive the chaos around him was the Holy Spirit. Job's wife did not have the Holy Spirit with her. She was in utter despair. Today we see people who are straight up panic mode, both left and the right as well. It's outrage and panic every day. The world is kind of crazy right now. The chance of Canada being a country that's free when my grandchildren are raising babies, that's pretty low. We might lose everything. But when we rest in the power of the Holy Spirit, it changes everything. We can know that God is in control even when things look out of control. We can know that our Redeemer lives. The amazing thing about the book of Job is that everything is given back to Job with a double blessing. And that means everything was given back to his wife with a double blessing as well. What can I learn from this? The world is, the world is a disaster. Everyone is running around like Chicken Little. The sun is falling. We're all going to die. It's literally Hitler or Russia. Scream, scream, yell, yell. Those of us who have the Holy Spirit should be able to stay calm. God is in control, even when it seems there is nothing to be in control of. And above all, we can trust him. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, I don't have that peace, but I wish I did. Here's the great news. The Holy Spirit is God's gift that he gives freely. The price for this gift was paid for by Jesus Christ. When you turn to Jesus Christ and believe that he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. When you turn to Jesus Christ and believe that he is God and he alone can rescue you from your problem of sin. When you tell Jesus you are sorry for your sin and ask him to forgive you, he will admit you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is God and he alone can save you and call out to him. The Bible says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. I'll see you next week. In the meantime, check out my website for more videos and past podcasts at lauraleesiemens.com.